We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3 is where we start. And as we come to 2 Kings chapter 3, we left off last week with Elijah, the great prophet from 1 Kings, being caught up to be with the Lord in heaven and his coat falling to Elisha, his mentor who is mentoring. And Elisha had asked for the double portion. And remember, it was our typical on Saturday. And Elijah had said to Elisha, you ask for a, a hard thing. For a double portion of the Lord requires double responsibility, if you will. But if you have these things happen after I go, if you see me leave, they know that you received it. And in fact, Elisha did receive the double portion of the Spirit of God upon his life that had been on Elijah's. And so we talked about how Elijah, there had been no one probably in human history with the signs and wonders and supernatural power that Elijah demonstrated in the nation of Israel around 800 BC when they were the people of covenant. And yet the Lord came for him and Elisha has replaced him with a double portion of power for the next generation going forward. So the wicked King Ahab that Elijah was engaged with, he's dead. Ahaziah, his son, is dead. There's a new other son of Ahab that comes to power in the north. Jehoshaphat is still the king in Judah in the south, and we go forward tonight with that background. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and his mother. For he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, was a a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So this was a tax or a tribute. So King Jehoram went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And Jehoshaphat said, I will go up. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, Which way should we go up? And he answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom, which is to the south, into the very dry and uh, Sinai, Sinai Peninsula region. Verse 9, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king or the uh, proxy king of Edom. Remember, Edom had a deputy under Israel that was over that territory. And they were allied and had that representation, that Lincoln. So the three together, Israel, Judah, and Edom, they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. That's how Jehoram thought. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He was his servant. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of uh, Edom went down to him. And then Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. Now, we'll stop here for a second. 
So new king in Israel, Jehoram, he's bad, but not as bad as his dad. And um, Jehoshaphat, you know, sometimes you just go like, really? Like Jehoshaphat, like, okay, you, you, you went to war with Ahab and you almost got killed and they chased your chariot and you called out to the, you cried out to the Lord and he heard your cry and he delivered you. Then you had the business deal with the ships to go get gold with Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, and that was, we're told, in case there'd be any confusion, like bad luck, bad timing, that God struck those ships down because you're in a business partnership with Ahaziah. And here you are again now with the third guy in a row from this family, and you say the same thing you say to Ahab, my people or your people, we're together. And, you know, we talked about this, but unity at all costs has a cost, doesn't it? Unity at all costs has a cost. And we, I mean, I don't know if I want to commend Jehoshaphat that he really wants to live peaceably with all people or, you know, with people of covenant, shake hands and sing kumbaya, but these people, just, it's hard to do. It's hard to do this with the descendants of Ahab who are condemned by the Lord, but he does it again. However, in this story, we get an interesting contrast because twice Jehoram, in his world of unbelief and his darkened thinking, he's a doom and gloomer. He's a half-empty cup kind of guy. He's convinced, like it was his idea to go this route, and he's like, oh, God's, God's brought us here to punish us. And you can think that way. You know, if you hang out with drug dealers, don't. But if you did, and maybe you did in your past, people who do drugs are generally very paranoid of everything. Someone's always watching. They look out the window. They do this. You know what I'm saying? And you, you get this guilt conscious because you, you should feel guilty. You're doing something wrong. That's how it works. Your, our conscience will condemn us. And in the case of Jehoram, who knows? Well, the kings of Israel, we talked about this with Ahab and even Ahaziah, the law of God applied to them. The Ten Commandments, the, the law of God that God gave Moses, it was for them. So they said, what's the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is to obey the Ten Commandments in your heart and to honor the God of Israel and not tolerate things that God says should not be in his land for a people of covenant. So once Jehoram would be unwilling to obey the obvious will of the Lord and do his own little thing where he takes down this altar, but, you know, he's still a bad guy. Like, so he's the kind of guy that says, I'm not as bad as the other guy, right? Like when you get three people busted for trouble, like, well, I'm not as bad as him. I just drove the getaway car. He actually held the gun in the liquor store, right? Like, people think like that when they're like this. He knew what, there's every reason to believe he knew the right thing to do, and he didn't do it. But he, there's strength in numbers. He convinced Jehoshaphat to go with him. But in this case, his being yoked with Jehoshaphat does not condemn the army or bring them defeat. Like the business venture with Ahaziah and Jehoshaphat doomed the fleet. But in this case, his unbelief, his rebellion to the Lord doesn't actually bring doom on Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat brings light and blessing on the situation. So I don't really have all the answers to it, but we've been going through this together, so we at least have to acknowledge this because with Ahab, they go to war, and Jehoshaphat almost dies and cries out to the Lord. With the, gold, the ships that get gold, Jehoshaphat with Ahaziah, it's doomed by the Lord. But here, third king from the north with Jehoshaphat in this deal, Jehoshaphat actually is the preserving salt. So I guess sometimes you just have to do something with people and you, you bring the blessing even though they're a curse. Jehoram is a curse. The, the cup is half empty for this guy. God brought us out here to kill us. He said it twice if he didn't catch it. And Jehoshaphat's like, now hang on, hang on. 
just hang on here. Is there not a prophet among us? See, one thing about Joseph, who's he looking for every time there's a war? A prophet. <laughs> By the way, that's good counsel, isn't it? If you're going to battle, the prophet's in the word of God. Let the word of God be your strength. So he's like, yeah, let's, let's get, let's get, you know, there should be a prophet around here. Let's, let's find a prophet. And they're like, well, you know, Elisha, the guy that hung out with Elijah and watched just say, like, that guy, that guy, the word of the Lord is with him. Get him over here. It's like, if you get one of those pastors, used to be under Pastor Chuck, like Greg Laurie or Steve Mays, like, hey, get him over here. They got, they're, they're good. The Lord's with them. In fact, we know Elisha has a double portion. So Jehoshaphat's, he's yoked again with these kings from the north, but he knows that he needs the word of the Lord. And yet again, Jehoram says, we're doomed. And I just, before we move on from this, I just have to say like, if you're walking with the Lord, which most of you, if not all of you are, and you're letting the Spirit guide you, and you're sincerely seeking the Lord, we're, we're blessed. We're the head, not the tail, like it says in the Old Testament. We're the people of blessing. We're the people that have the spiritual authority. We're the Elishas with the double portion. We have the Spirit. It's God working in and through us for his good pleasure. And we, we need to see faith. We need to speak faith. We need to see truth, speak truth. We need to see healing, speak healing. We need to believe all that. And whatever God chooses to do or not do, let it not be hindered because we saw a half-empty glass and feel like we're doomed when we're going to battle. I expect, I expect great things from the Lord in my life. I've always, I don't know why, but I've always been a half full glass kind of guy. I've always been that way. You know, I drew the world champion my first pro contest the night before when we were all playing ping pong and all the guys like, oh, so sorry. No Californians even in the top 30 in the world. And poor Joey, you know, he's a good little surfer, but he drew the world champion. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. I went to bed going like, this is my chance to make a name for myself. I'm not just going to beat him. I'm going to beat him like a drum. That's how I think. I don't know why I think that way. I've always thought that way. I don't see obstacles. I just see opportunity. And I did beat Robert Bartholomew like a drum. And I shocked the world. And by the end of the year, I was in the finals of the Pipe Masters with Jerry Lopez at 17. Because again, I saw opportunity. Now, I know that's surfing. I was Catholic. I did believe in God. And God had his hand on me. But it's just a reminder, like, like William Carey, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. And, and be the people that would just wake up believing like, just believing, and there's no bad news that can quench our good news in Jesus Christ. That's how we need to be. Poor Jehoram. You all know Jehoram. You work with Jehoram. You'll probably have Thanksgiving with Jehoram. Okay? <laughs> just, just like, just like, just boundaries. He's your neighbor. He's your relative. He might even be in the trust with you, but just keep Jehoram in his place. And don't let him define your thought process, how God works in and through your life for the kingdom. Joseph is like, I, let, is there a prophet? <laughs> you're like, you're dim and gloom. Is there a prophet around here? Yes, there is. In fact, there's a great one. So I just point out, like, don't, don't speak such folly. But the people that speak such folly are usually people of unbelief. And they've just programmed themselves contrary to and against the promises of God. And it's so sad, but that's actually most people. Don't be that person. So verse 15, he said, now bring me a musician. Then it happened. When the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, thus says the Lord. So there's Elijah out there's worship. It's like, like Jeff Anderson leading us in worship, and Elijah's like, yeah, and he's feeling it. He's getting all Pentecostal, you know. He's doing a Jericho march. And then he's like, music's over, and he says, thus says the Lord. 
Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind nor shall see rain, yet this valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, cut down every good tree, stop up every spring of water, and ruin every good piece of land with the stones. With stones. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Then all the Moabites heard the king, heard the kings had come up to fight against them. All who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. And then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. So it was a, a deceptive angle or view that they had. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. Remember, Israel and Judah in the south often had civil war, so you could see why they'd think that. Verse 24. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before them, and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities, and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. They stopped up all the springs of water, cut down all the good trees, but they left the stones of Kir Harashat intact. However, the slings sur- surrounded and attacked it. The slingers, so like, you know, that kind of thing. Verse 26, and when, the king of Moab, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall, and there was great indignation against Israel, so they departed from him and returned to their own land. We'll come back to that in just a second. But I draw your attention to verse 18. When there's worship and praise and the prophets in the house, there's just a good promise and a good word in this situation. And God bless Jehoshaphat. His presence made everything better for the people around him. And Elisha says, and this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. See, God was going to do something supernatural, which we read he did. They had the accountability to do their part, to dig the ditches and all that. We'll see that again in the next chapter, something similar. So they had to do their part. But it's kind of like John 2, where the Lord turns water into wine. We fill the water pots, and God does the supernatural with it. And that's exactly what happened. But it's a reminder to us, and whatever we're facing, whatever we're Whatever we're up against when we look in the mirror at ourselves, whatever we're facing in our homes, in our employment, with our finances, with our life and with our health and all these things in general, it's just a good reminder with Elijah here. It, this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. This is a man who's going to perform great miracles, miracles only like Jesus did, yet who would get sick and die later on. In this book, it says he got sick and he died, which just goes to show, like we've said, you can heal other people like Paul the Apostle with his, nap, with his handkerchief, but he himself wasn't healed. Who can know what the Lord's doing at any given time? But make no mistake, whatever God wants to do, however hard it might seem in your life, in my life, deliverance from sin, deliverance from legal oppression, false accusations, financial hardship, it is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? As Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, if you get Genesis 1-1, all the rest just flows. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. If you get that, you realize the God who spoke the universe into existence can do anything, anytime, anyhow he wants to accomplish his good pleasure and his will in our life. And he can allow things a certain way, like a 
a thorn in the flesh, or can, he can allow this afflicting neighbor or these things that we see in the Bible. But in the end, for the follower of Christ, they always produce good in our life. They're meant to produce something good, that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. It is a simple matter. I think of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar threw them in the fire. And they said to the king, because Nebuchadnezzar said, look, if you just bow down to the statue of me and my gods, then, you know, I'll be good. So they'll play the music again, and I'll let you off the hook. And, like, we don't need to be let off the hook. Our God is able to deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, just know we're never bowing down to your idol. This is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. A headache, terminal cancer. It's a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. There is no distinction. A dollar, a trillion dollars. It's just more zeros. It's perceived wealth. It's a simple thing in the eyes of the Lord. We need to keep that in mind. We cannot let the devil in our flesh blow up our giants and take down our king. We need to exalt our king and bring down our giants in Jesus' name. Now, this last little verse there where the, the king sacrificed his son, it's so repugnant and repulsive, it's hard to read. But the Bible is brutally honest. And let's be honest, there's lots of people that sacrifice their sons. And I could say a lot more, but it'll just grieve us all, and you don't need to hear it from me. So if you're repulsed by this verse, I am too. And if you even go to commentaries and see people talk about it, no one wants to talk about it. It's just so repulsive. It's so radical, just shocking. It's so repugnant to have this guy, this king, so desperate to sacrifice his son and hang him on the wall that his own people are like, wow. And the Israelites are like, wow. The Israelites went home, and the people woke up the next day going like, man, we got a gnarly king, man. This is... And that's what happens when you sacrifice your children. Everyone just walks away stunned with wah. And that's what happened. Israel did. Not sure what happened with Moab, but Israel, even like Jehoshaphat's like, forget it. You can't help this guy. This just, just go home. And some things will blow your mind like that. And this is mind-blowing, the evil, the depravity, and the sickness of it all. What are you going to do? They're Moabites. That's what they did. It's just not what Israel was to do. Now we read on in the next chapter. Chapter 4. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. Then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels. Do not gather just a few. And when you've come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, then pour into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another vessel. So the oil ceased. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt. You and your sons live on the rest. This is a great story. Now we already saw Elijah with the widow and the oil and all that back in chapter, what was it, 17, where it didn't run out. Here we have Elisha. Now, note the woman. She's a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets. She's a pastor's wife. 
and she's a widow, and her kids are orphaned. Worth noting, when you see our prayer list, the new prayer list this year that's now out on the counter on your way out, I'll talk about it next week, of what we've done with international missions and domestic outreach, a number of the people we bless are pastor's wives who have been widowed by the passing of their husbands and still have kids they're raising and they still have rent to pay just like everyone else in Southern California, wherever they live in Africa, different places. And it just, it blesses me when I see something like this because it shows us we're in the right place. And this also shows me why God blesses his church so much. See, we keep ourselves under the spout where the glory comes out. Like we keep ourselves in a place where God blesses us. Or as I've said recently, the Lord put in my heart, don't be the kink in the hose. You buy a cheap hose, it'll kink when you're watering the yard, you know, and it kinks. Like you go back, you unkink it, then kinks, I guess, you know. You get your 1999 hose, you know, and that's what you get. You can get all these newer hoses, but they still kink. They don't kink as often, but they kink. And you'll go like this. And then you go back there and the dogs are watching, you go back and forth and kink the hose. And what the Lord showed me is, don't kink the hose. I'll give you more if you keep it flowing. Early this year, someone handed me a very large check, very large. And they said, we trust you with this check because your church is mission-minded. And I said, all this will go in the mission field. I'll tell you that right now. And it did. We don't want to be the kink in the hose. We want to keep things flowing. Our leadership, you, your home. We want to be generous people. We want to cast our bread upon many waters and we want to sow bountifully and abundantly with our time, our energy, and our resources. That's who we are. We're givers. That's the DNA of worship generation, which really is kind of silly because it's the DNA of the universal church of Jesus Christ. That's the DNA of the church. That's Samaritan's Purse. That's what we're all supposed to be in Jesus' name. We're just so accustomed in America where people can say Jesus' name and be takers, not givers. And that's their issue, not mine. And who might even say who's really a taker or a giver? I just want to make sure when I look in the mirror, I see a giver. When I look at the congregation, I see a giver. When you look at the pastor, you see a giver. And this is our DNA and who we are. Don't be a kink in the hose. We want to be sensitive to the pastor's wife, widow. We want to be sensitive to the orphans. We want to be sensitive to the needs around us and God making us aware of them and how we can just be a blessing to other people. For the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And as you've been talking about, if we sow mercy bountifully, we'll find mercy. If we sow kindness, we'll sow kindness. If we sow friendship, we'll receive friendship. It's just so... It truly is the second great law of the universe. Gravity being number one for physical, sowing and reaping being number one for spiritual. It is absolutely true, which also carries over in this text because Elisha told the, the widow, go get some vessels, as many as you can, and watch what happens. So she's, a, she's, a, she's in debt. The creditors are coming to take her sons as slaves to pay off her debt. And sometimes... Men step into eternity. They didn't have a life insurance policy. There was nothing in the bank. They were upside down on credit cards. Things like that happen. That's a whole other Bible study. But she was left hanging. And for the, for the living, life goes on. Her husband was a, a prophet. But they're in debt. And the creditors are coming. Because the creditors, they do come. Eventually. Somehow, some way, they come. But her cry before the Lord... Her need before the Lord, Elisha's 
word of the Lord to her, and we see two beautiful things happening here. The supernatural Lord, and yet again, like the digging of the ditches in the previous chapter, what she did is what she got. See, we don't earn our salvation, but our salvation is working through us as we're yielded to the Lord. And if we go all in with the things of the Lord, the more we sow, I think of court sharing his faith with people, like the more people he shares his faith with, the more likely someone's going to respond to the gospel message. Frank and Jennifer go on mission trips to the Middle East. The more doors you knock on, the more likely you're going to run into someone who's open to the gospel, whether it's Mauritania or Turkey or Afghanistan. The more you sow, the more likely it's going to happen. Or as Wayne Gretzky said, for all you sports fans, you miss all the shots you never take. So this woman, the supernatural miracle's coming, but she was part of it, she, like the six full pots of water in John 2. And she, she primed the pump, as they say. She went out there, and as many vessels as she went and got, that's how many were full. None of them came up short. So let's say she got 40 vessels. All 40 were full. Let's say she got 40. Did God just fill 39 and she had one extra vessel? No. He filled every vessel that she got. And her doing in obedience to his calling and his providing became the means by which she redeemed her children out of slavery and not only got out from being under, upside down, being the tail, but she went to being the head because now she has money in the bank and Elisha says, live off that. So in a spiritual way, she got her hustle on, did exactly what the prophet said. God honored it. She was blessed for it. And not only did she clear her debt, she's right side up. So if you're in debt, Crowd to the Lord and tell him the creditors are coming and see what he tells you what to do to go find some empty vessels and fix that. Because he definitely wants to turn that around. Th that would be the heart of the Lord to, to turn that around. And certainly in America where you have the means and opportunities to turn that around, it's capable. In some cases around the world, that's why we support so many ministries where people are persecuted like Voice of the Martyrs, where they don't have, they don't have the same opportunity to turn it around. But if you live in Southern California, you can turn it around. Even if you're not a citizen, you can turn it around. I mean, I talk to young people. They talk about how expensive it is to get a rental and all this stuff in Southern California. Listen, I know, and I'd like to help you. But the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God who sent his son, can help you more than I can. So look to him and figure out how he's going to do it for you. When the prophet tells us to go get the vessels, empty vessels, go get them. When God's wanting to do supernatural in our life, let's do our part to get all of the supernatural he wants to do in our life. And that's a good word that clearly, contextually, comes from this text. Let's get the blessing. But let's get our hustle on to get the blessing. I have to say this because I'm a sports guy, but I, I saw a clip of Kobe Bryant. It was about Kobe Bryant, the great basketball player of the Lakers. And it was one of his teammates saying that he thought he had a lot of, that he worked hard and did all these things in the gym. Then he came to the Lakers and he showed up to do morning training and Kobe was leaving. Kobe would go to the gym at 4 a.m. for his first training. And then he'd come back like and join those guys that came in later and he was already lapping them. And I thought about this, that as an athlete, Kobe Bryant never got out-hustled by anybody. And he used to make key shots. He took over games in the most 
approximable times of championship games, he took them over. And he did it for Team USA to win the gold medal more than once, where he literally took games over in the fourth quarter to win the gold medal for Team USA. He had this confidence that came from what he put in that he knew he could trust it. Now, as a pro athlete, I had a certain philosophy. I never wanted to look at anyone with a jersey on on the world tour and felt they were better prepared for that moment than me. So if I looked at Tom Curran and I lost to Tom Curran, it wouldn't be because he out-hustled me or out-prepared me. Now, again, this is sports, but when I look at this text, there is certainly, well, James said it best, faith without works is dead. It's not the works of the flesh that save us, but it's the works of faith that are active, engaged, proactively getting after everything God has for us. And I just can't help but notice it so profoundly in this text. It's just such a strong application. Pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. See, if we depend on Jesus for the lottery, we won't know what to do when we win the lottery. They've done the TV shows and all the statistics and 60 years of American lottery. Pretty much everyone that wins a lottery loses all of it in a very short period of time. It's the person that shows up early for work, does the job without bad attitude, finishes the job with good attitude, and like I recently shared with Pastor Chuck, I've been reflecting when I asked Pastor Chuck for more money, and, you know, because he always said no when I asked for more money, but the epiphany hit me last week, randomly, that what I should offer Pastor Chuck was more service for the money. I asked Pastor Chuck, well, first I told him he was cheap. I know. St. Joseph, please, no. First, I told him I was cheap. And that, you know, I feel like well, that's, that's worth something, you know, like. And, and uh, oh. Uh, and, of course, he didn't give me, he, he called the other churches and offered me to them to be their pastor, actually. Literally, that very moment, he called two churches and said, oh, he needs a church. He's right here. Um, but in hindsight, I think, if I could do that all over again, because that was when I was like 45 or something, I should have said, Chuck is there a way I can make more money around here? Is there some extra work I can do? Can I show up? Can I increase my services to this ministry in this church to increase my value, to increase my income? Well, Joey and all, he would have found a way. Many of you know Pastor Chuck. He would have found a way. But instead, I said, he told me it's cheap. And I, I, I was like, give me the lottery. I want more money. And I want to keep coming in when I come in, doing what I do when I do, and just... No. See, he knew that Joey Brand needed to learn the lesson. You got to bring your A game to get the Lord's A game. That's the way life works. And these guys that are super wealthy, they didn't get there by dumb luck and accident. And theirs is temporal. We want to be wealthy in the things of the kingdom. We need to really find as many empty vessels as we can so God can fill them up. And show us how great he is in the supernatural when our available, this treasure in earthen vessels, when we make this available, what incredible things he can do in our lives when we do that. Verse 8. Now we're going to read some text here. These are some stories of Elisha doing supernatural things that are just like Jesus, and you'll see it. Now, it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, and where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would uh, turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and, and let us put a, a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand. So it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. 
very generous, benevolent thought here. And it happened one day that he came there and turned into the upper room and laid down. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, so Gehazi is Elisha's right-hand man. So he's the new Elisha, like he's the next backup quarterback, if you will. He's the next one on deck. So he says to Gehazi, call this Shunammite woman. And when he called her, he, she stood before him and he said, uh, she, he said to him, say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, well, what, what then can be done for her? And Gehazi said, actually, she has no son and her husband's old. So Elijah said, hey, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said to her, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha told her. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. So he said, Why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. So then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So that's where Elisha was. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman. Please run, run now to, to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she said, it is well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is deeply distressed, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I not ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him, but lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So she's clinging to him. He's the flashpoint of faith for her faith in the God of Israel. Like he's the guy she's not letting go. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore, he went back to meet him and told him, saying, The child is not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, there was a child lying dead on his bed. And he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. And he returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself on him. The child sneathed seven times. And the child opened his eyes. Then he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. So he called her, and when she came into him, he said, Pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, bowed to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. What a beautiful story. The Moabite king's killing his son, and here the woman's getting her son raised by the great prophet Elisha. What a contrast. The world... It's the fingerprints of death in unbelief. But the world of the kingdom of God 
It's the, it's, it's the breath of life. It's so beautiful, and it's hard not to immediately think of Jesus and Jairus' daughter, right? It's so similar, where Jesus comes on to sorrow, a young child, well, Jairus' daughter was 12, the sorrow, the heartache, the mourners, and Jesus goes up there, and he raises her from the dead and says, give, give her something to eat. It's an amazing story. Now, if we think about human history from the dawn of creation with Adam, through the pre-flood world, Noah and the ark, post-flood world, the ice age, and then Abraham and these guys, and, and the subsequent people, like I said with Elijah, you're hard-pressed to find anyone that had the miracles of Elijah, let alone Elisha with the double portion. And even as Elijah at times was a type of Christ, Elisha, this is amazing. This, this reminds me so much of Jairus' daughter, where a parent losing a young child is just, ah, oh, it's just the most gut-wrenching. Doing that memorial today at Calvary for Peter Hughes, in the Fellowship Hall, where Donna's mom's memorial was just a couple weeks ago, where we danced at the Dean wedding, right? And I'm at the same place today for a memorial for Peter Hughes, who died in his late 60s of a heart attack, who attended here for years. And I don't know why this happened this way, but when I was sharing, the place was full. The Fellowship Hall was packed. It was full. And as most of people our age, like 50-ish, um, if you're younger than that, don't take offense. If you're older, be grateful. I downsize your age, right? But it was, it was people, it was, you know, because he was 67, 68, so it's his peer group. There were, of course, grandchildren there and, you know, adult children. So obviously, but when, I, when I, I had a little bookmark with his picture and his Bible verses, like you have those things, and I was looking at this, and, and I knew Peter, and I, I love Peter. Like I talked with him so many times at WG, just like you guys do after service, right back there where Frank and Jody are sitting right now. That's where they sat with the boys. And I, I felt pretty, you know, I had my suit on. I felt like, okay, we got this. We, you know, we got, you know, it's a playoff game. We got our game going right now. It's serious. It's, you know, there's a big difference between a memorial and a midweek service. Not that they're not both equally important, but it's just a, you know, it's a whole other thing. And I felt composed, and I looked to my left toward the sanctuary and I thought back of the memorials I did for children in the Calvary Costa Mesa sanctuary. Heather Bonham. Trinity Jameson. And I don't know why the Lord does this sometimes, but it's like I I lost my strength of composure for the moment and I thought I was going to completely lose it. And, And you know, like when you're Somewhere and all of a sudden things flashed in your eyes for like three to five seconds, this whole thing. And suddenly I'm back looking at everybody like I'm looking at you. And, I, and, it, and it gave me a, a, that sense of reality of eternity, but it also gave me a sense of joy that Peter did live a rich, full life. And this is before his granddaughter sang the song he taught her about, Jesus Loves Me. But I was reminded today in the, in the, in the deepest thresholds of my heart how painful the loss of a child is. I just touched it for a moment that grief and that sorrow, and I know it, and I try not to ever touch it. When the Lord brings it, he brings it, but I don't go looking for it. And so I look at this text, and we have to realize the sorrow and the grief and the heaviness for this woman in this moment. She was withheld from having a child, and that would make her feel like she's cursed, and the neighbors would think she's cursed. I prayed for someone that wanted a child at Poncho's church on Sunday morning. They've been trying for a long time to have children, this beautiful young couple. And they're both in tears. And I think, why do people, why do people who don't want to have kids just don't raise them or throw them away or whatever? It's like, 
If you really want to have kids, why does the Lord withhold children from them? And I don't have the answers for that, but I pray that God will open the womb. But you get this sense of stigma like Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca had and Hannah in the Bible. And this woman had it. And it was, she, did, she didn't dare to dream when, Eli, when Elisha said, you're going to have a baby, a son in years. Like, no, don't even say that. She was so beaten down in her mind by all the negative comments of a lifetime of being barren. Could she hope against hope? See, the devil, the flesh, our own sense of self-condemnation will keep us from believing God for the things that are great that he can do in our life. And this woman's like, don't even say that. It's like this, you know, you meet certain people that say, I don't ever want to get my hopes up. I get mine up and they get crushed sometimes. But then again, I've been a world champion too. You know, like I soar high and I crash hard. It's like in Texas, you win big and you lose big. Yeehaw. You know, like you got to go for it and you got to believe. That's just how I am. I've been the pipe champion. I've been last place in the pipe masters. I've been the world champion surf coach. I've been the last place surf coach too in the same world championships. What are you going to do? I've done my son's, I've been at my son's funeral and I've watched two sons graduate honors list from college on the dean's list. It's life, WG. Don't be afraid to let the Lord bless you. And don't let a spirit of fear keep you crippled from what God wants to do. I hung out with Brian Jameson the other day in this office, and we were laughing like we always do. We were best friends for five years in this building. And when I did his daughter's memorial, her, his nine, 10-year-old daughter's memorial, it was the, December 4th. It was the hardest day of my life at Big Calvary. But we talked about losing children and how the Lord uses it for good and how if you just truly trust in the Lord, he'll use it for good. He doesn't always raise the widow's, or the, the she wasn't the widow, but the Shunammite woman's son, the barren woman's son. He doesn't always do this. He doesn't always open a barren womb. He doesn't always let a child walk out of chalk alive. Sometimes the mortuary comes for the children at chalk hospital because they do. And that's just the way it is. But that shouldn't keep us from believing God and who he is, his character, his person, and his greatness and his goodness over our life at all times, in every second of our life, in the hourglass that is our life. Because his thoughts are good thoughts to give us a future and a hope. They're not of evil. So in the darkest of valleys that hurt so much like this, even if he doesn't raise your child, you need to know he can raise your child. Even if he didn't save your child, you need to know he could save your child. And that whatever God does is good. And that's why David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Our God is a good God. He's a good, good God. There is no other God. Our God's a rock and he's good. And all that he does is good. And that dimension we're headed to, we, we can't, I can't speak it. I, I can declare it, but I, I can't give you any visuals on it because it's just, it's, I have not seen or heard those things that God has for us. So he lived by faith and all the heartaches and the trials and all the unknown. And you know, some days, Elisha shows up and he raises your son from the dead. And isn't that a glorious thing? She's, she was hanging on like this. And he's upstairs pacing and praying and laying on the kid and breathing life back into him. That's what Jesus does. He raises the dead. God takes that which is dead and makes it alive in Jesus' name. That's the blood. That's the spirit. That's the promises. That's the empty tomb. That's the ascension. That's the right hand. That's the coming glory and the Mount of Olives split. 
That's who Jesus is. He makes alive what's dead. So just if something didn't go the way you want it to and it ended up being dead and it wasn't raised up, just know it will be raised up. This woman's, she, got, she had the baby, she was pregnant, or she didn't have her menstrual cycle, right? She's pregnant, can you imagine the joy? And then still that was there, and this is the day she was set free. This was the day she knows the God of Israel is the God of the universe. Because her son was dead, but she did not lose faith because she clung. Gehazi's like, get her off. Like, oh, we'll get to Gehazi next week. Gehazi's like, oh, what are you doing, you know? Elisha's like, hey, let it go. This is such an encouraging story. Our God raises the dead. Jesus, this is a shadow. Jesus is the fullness. Hallelujah. Jesus reigns. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this guy is just the foreshadow. Jesus is the real deal. And that's who is over our church, over our lives, over our mind, and over the call in our life. Verse 38, And Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said to this servant, put on a large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So it's a famine. They're all hungry, so they're going to cook a big, big potluck. So one went out in the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered it from a laptop, uh, excuse me, a lap full of wild gourds, came in, sliced them up in the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then, then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. So it's something poisonous, right? So he said, then bring some flour, and he put it in the pot, serve it to the people that they may eat, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. It's like Jesus and the leper. Jesus is not defiled by the leper. When Jesus touches the leper, the leper is cleansed by Jesus. The leper doesn't defile Jesus. And Elisha here is, again, like a type of Jesus. That which is poisonous, once he, in the power of God, pronounces the healing over the poison, it's healing. That's what the Lord does in our life. That those poisonous stews that we conjure up for ourselves in our famine, and the Lord can, he can supernaturally touch it. Isn't, isn't it really is amazing grace, right? If you really think about it, we're on this journey, like, say, 80 years, and we, we, we wake up, we mean well, we do well, we stumble, we fall, go to sleep, wake up, ask forgiveness, start over. It's like this cycle. And, like, we never really arrive. Like Paul said, not that I've attained... But I press on what lies ahead to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. We have not arrived. We will not arrive until we breathe our last. If you see me breathe my last, you can say, Joey arrived. But we're not, I haven't arrived. We're like this Caltran work on the 405 right now. <laughs> like, we're all under construction. But you see certain bridges like, hey, they finished that bridge over there. That's like us. We're all under construction, and we're under construction, and sometimes we're poisoned by this, or we, we, we take our own poison, whatever, but the Lord blesses us. I'm not trying to be too hyper-spiritual. I'm just saying, like, the Lord, what's poisonous, the Lord, well, the Lord throws his flower in there, and it's, it's healed. And so, you, these guys didn't go, you guys weren't looking to put poisonous gourds in their stew in a famine. But God delivered them, just like Jehoshaphat when he was surrounded by the kings of Syria coming after him, like, oops. Wrong guy, but he's crying out to the Lord. See, God is, God heals. And, and it's always good. Life poisons. Try not to poison your mind by what we put in it. Try not to poison it by what we speak and how we act and react.
Let's fill our mind with the, the good things of the Lord and his word, with the promises of God. Let's speak the promises of God. Let's be the promises of God. Let's be the fingerprints of God. There's too many people that are poisonous with everything they touch is poisonous. Like poison oak, poison ivy. It's just poison. Let's be the people that are the healing and the blessing like Jesus. That's why we're here. Verse 42, we wrap up the chapter. Then a man came from Baal Shilshah and brought the man of God bread and first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what, what shall I set this before 100 men? He said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Yet again, we think of Jesus, right? With the feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 extra baskets. The Lord's got our back. And I, I find it interesting that we, we end this chapter of the famine. And I can't, you know, if you watch the news and don't, but if you get little pieces of the news, there's people that say we're headed for the worst famine ever. And somebody, no, no, there's no famine. There won't be a famine. Don't fear the famine. Famines test us. It's never about the money. It's always about the heart. Trust in the Lord. Our God will provide. 